Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, pedophilia, sexual abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. You're a devout Christian parent who's moved your entire family to a secluded compound to be closer to the man who you believe to be Christ incarnate. This man offers spiritual fulfillment and validation for all your beliefs. On this land, away from the chaos of the outside world, you and your family live a simple life that has one purpose, to worship God. The man chooses your teenage daughter to come live with him. She has been selected by God to engage in a deeper spiritual commitment in his home. Your daughter is 12. The man is in his late 40s. Nine other girls have been selected for this spiritual duty. There is a bonding ceremony in which all the girls essentially become spiritually married to this man. After the ceremony, the man pulls you aside. He says that he may sleep with your daughter as part of their marital commitment to God. Who are you to say no? This man is the human embodiment of Jesus. For 10 families in the River Road Fellowship, this question was far from hypothetical. Their leader, Victor Bernard, asked to marry and sleep with their preteen daughters. And one by one, every parent agreed and handed their children over to his will. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. This is Cults on the Parcast Network. Today, we take a look at Victor Bernard and his hidden rural sect, the River Road Fellowship. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. A lot of you have asked how you can help support us. The best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Almost all Christians believe there will be a second coming of Christ. For these believers, the second coming is not theoretical. It's an absolute certainty, which makes it that much easier for some cult leaders to claim to be Christ made flesh. One such cult leader was Victor Arden Bernard. He groomed a tight-knit group of 150 followers to move away with him into a remote part of Minnesota under the assumption that he was Christ incarnate. This week, we'll see how he built this following through the 1990s. Next week, we'll take a look at how, despite his best efforts, Victor's secretive commune was exposed and thrust into the national spotlight and torn apart in the early 2010s. Victor Bernard was born in 1961 in Hennepin County, Minnesota, though his childhood was spent in South Minneapolis. Victor attended the Breck School, a highly rated Episcopalian private school in the Minneapolis suburb of Golden Valley. It's had a long association with the Episcopalian Church and can boast Frank Mars, founder of the Mars Incorporated Candy Company, as an alumnus. In his yearbook photos, Victor had long, curly hair and a wild, fun-loving smile. Friends from that time have said that Victor was a party animal who didn't have much trouble attracting the attention of the girls at school. He wasn't exactly the devout religious type. Classmate Mark Gilman describes him as someone with a big personality and a lot of charisma. 
the proverbial big man on campus. But despite his gregarious public persona, Victor hid feelings of loneliness and shame. Victor's parents divorced when he was just six years old. He and his three sisters were raised by their mother, Nancy, who had an undiagnosed mental illness and was often emotionally unstable. Victor's father, Stanley, later reported that Nancy had bipolar disorder, but in the 1970s, very little was understood about treating this illness. Her family would have borne the brunt of a lot of Nancy's more erratic behavior. A quick reminder, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. According to a 2014 study by Dr. Mark Ellenbogen with Concordia University, symptoms of bipolar can include impulse mania, highly irritated mood, and severe depression. Without treatment, these symptoms would have worsened over time. Because Nancy was largely a single parent, her children would have suffered the most direct trauma from her condition. Worse, they likely had no idea what was wrong with their mother. According to Dr. Ellen Bogan's study, children of bipolar parents are at a higher risk for psychosocial disorders themselves. They're also more likely to take part in criminal behavior and harbor dangerous attitudes towards sexuality and sex. It's clear Nancy's condition affected Victor, but he was good at hiding it. He channeled a lot of his energy into sports. A gifted and enthusiastic hockey player, Victor earned a full scholarship to Hobart College in New York in 1979. He made the varsity squad his freshman year. Victor was so good that his father Stanley hoped he would make the 1980 or 1984 Olympic team. But as Victor grew more successful, Nancy grew more erratic. She felt abandoned by her son, who moved away to college and left her at home. She would call Victor incessantly while he was at college, berating him for anything she could think of. She was verbally and emotionally abusive and tried to guilt him into moving back home. She knew how to push Victor's buttons, leaving him in tears, isolated in his dorm. His self-esteem was shredded and he felt like he needed to hide his truest self from potential friends around him. Victor was emotionally raw and in search of a deeper meaning for his life. The inner chaos made him a prime target for recruitment into a radical religious group, as would come to pass when he met a recruiter from The Way International, a religious cult based out of Ohio. The Way International was founded by another Victor, Victor Paul Weirwill. He preached a warped interpretation of the Bible that painted him as Christ incarnate and allowed him to build an actual army of followers that would fight for the Way to their deaths. Weirwill was a con man and a predator, recruiting thousands of young people into his fold. For more information on The Way International, check out our previous episodes on the destructive cult. What truly drew Victor to the way was that they believed that demonic possession was the reason for mental illness. It provided clarity on why Nancy Bernard treated her son with such contempt. The way believed that if they were able to exercise the devil from the mentally ill person, they can recover from their illness. It's important to remember that Victor Bernard had no idea what bipolar disorder was. The way offered him an answer to the abuses of his mother. Quite literally, the devil was making her do it. The Way promised Victor Bernard the chance at a normal life, a reconciliation with his mother. Victor was hooked. The Way were fastidious recruiters. Gaining new members was a big priority for them. They used a fairly common method called love bombing. Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White describes love bombing as the practice of overwhelming someone with signs of adoration and attraction. 
We all have a need for that kind of attention, so cults and narcissists will use that as a form of manipulation. They're convincing their potential victims that they really care. Convinced they're loved, those victims return that affection. Eventually, they become loyal and obedient followers, convinced of their shared investment. In the early 1980s, Victor joined the way with full enthusiastic commitment. His classmates would later remark on how shocked they were to see the party-loving jock embrace God so fully. Part of what made The Way International so dangerous was that its leader, Victor Weirwill, made himself God. To his Christian followers, the word of God was seen as absolute truth, which made his word above question. According to Rick Ross, cult expert and intervention specialist, that call for obedience is one of the warning signs of a dangerous cult leader. And unfortunately, Victor Bernard would take a page out of Weirwill's book as he created his own following in years to come. In the early 1980s, Victor gave up his hockey scholarship and dropped out of Hobart College. Then he traveled to The Way College in Emporia, Kansas, to better study his new religion. The move left Victor's friends and family shocked and utterly confused. Victor's father didn't say anything at the time, but later remembered this incident, quote, when the problem started. Victor immersed himself in the way. He tried to recruit friends and family members. If they weren't interested, he discarded them from his life. He attempted to recruit high school classmate Mark Gilman into the way. Gilman wasn't interested, and Victor never spoke to him again. Victor went to work on recruiting another friend of his. This time, it was an ex-girlfriend from high school. We've given her the moniker Mary. Mary told the Minneapolis Star Tribune that Victor had been, quote, really pumped about the way, end quote. Victor would constantly regale her with tales of how amazing the way was and how it could solve all her problems. He badgered her into signing up for a series of classes put on by the Way International. According to Mary, Victor was not only charming, but very persistent. He would call her throughout the day and late into the evening. Victor would extol the virtues of these classes late into the night, robbing Mary of sleep. According to studies done at the University of Wales, Swansea, sleep deprivation can make a person much more prone to persuasion. Victor eventually wore Mary down. Mary agreed not only to sign up for the classes, but to sign over a whole paycheck to pay for them. Despite being somewhat overbearing, Mary described Victor as sweet. It's possible he appealed to her sensitive side. It's also possible she was agreeing to get him to ease up on the late night phone calls. It's likely she didn't realize she was joining a cult. Luckily, Mary's family caught wind of the scheme and did not want a single cent more going toward the way. Her father and brother showed up with Mary to the first class to demand a refund. This enraged Victor, who unleashed verbal fury on Mary's family yelling at them until they left the class, sans refund. It was a telling reaction, and Mary was glad to have escaped the way. Victor's violent temper was triggered by having his authority undermined. This was the first documented example of such a reaction, but it would prove to be far from the last. Mary's story also marks the first time that Victor would try to control someone of the opposite sex, though that would also become a pattern as his own cult formed. In 1983, Victor joined the Way Corps, the cult's four-year leadership training program. He learned all manner of leadership techniques and practices, all the way down to the minute details, like the proper way to shake hands. Carl Kaler was a classmate of Victor's in the Way Corps. He would later break from the Way and write an expose called 
The Cult That Snapped. In it, he described Victor as a mellow character, not particularly charismatic, but nevertheless popular with the ladies. Victor was a heartthrob. He had the rugged good looks of a young Robert Redford. He was soft-spoken with a wide smile that women would happily return. This made him an ideal recruiter for the Way International. But as he learned how to bring unsuspecting women into the fold, he would also learn how to manipulate them for his own gain. To him, nothing about a woman was off limits. He just had to know which lie to tell to get exactly what he wanted. We'll learn more about those lies in just a moment. Now, back to the story. In 1981, 20-year-old Victor Bernard had given up hockey when he joined The Way. But there was one activity he didn't have to sacrifice, women. Founder Victor Weirwill twisted biblical passages to justify philandering. King David could not be accused of adultery because all women in his kingdom belonged to him. This analogy was applied to the leaders of the way. This passage had a profound impact on Victor Bernard. As we saw with Mary, Victor already had no compunction about manipulating women for his own ends. The way's attitude towards women fit nicely into Victor's worldview. When Victor was in his early 20s, he hit it off with Stephanie Sorrow, an assistant to Victor Weirwill himself and devout member of The Way. The two quickly fell in love and married in the summer of 1986. Stephanie was a true believer, which is precisely what Victor liked about her. For him, it was important that his partner share his beliefs so that she would never question them, specifically the part about adultery. Time would prove that of all Victor's beliefs, this was one he held most dear. On May 20th, 1985, Victor Weirwill passed away of natural causes. This caused the group to splinter under new leadership. In his book, Carl Kaler discusses members who branched out to form organizations of their own, Victor Bernard included. In 1990, Victor relocated to his home state of Minnesota and settled along River Road in Rush City. Despite the name, Rush City was a small rural town situated in a remote region between Minneapolis and Duluth. The town had a population of a few thousand. Victor had the opportunity to start anew with relative anonymity in a region he was familiar with. Victor stayed in touch with former members of the Way International. He was slowly assuring them that he was building a new path to righteousness. Remember, these former members were lost. They shunned the views of mainstream Christianity, so they weren't sure where to turn. Victor appeared to be a safe island for those lost in the spiritual sea. Victor empowered them with strength and resolve. He gave them answers that they once sought from Weirwill. Throughout the late 80s and early 90s, Victor would give sermons around the Twin Cities, slowly building a following. As he grew little groups of potential cult members, he also grew his family. Over these years, Stephanie gave birth to four sons, all of whom Victor showered with love. Eventually, in 1992, Victor joined a prayer group known as TWIG and easily slipped into a leadership role. He would control the communal activities of the group and eventually rename it the River Road Fellowship. From there, he decided to test just how much power he had over his new groupies. 12-year-old Jessica Morecambe and her family attended Victor's weekly Bible study, now known as River Road Fellowship. Jessica describes 32-year-old Victor as commanding and charismatic. Members either loved or feared him, but nobody challenged his authority. 
Former member Kayla Backman has since said that Victor imposed restrictive rules on the River Road Fellowship. He would restrict worship to only his home. He had to approve what media people consumed. Members were not allowed to use the word awesome because only God was awesome. These rules allowed Victor to control his members. He decided what they could consume so his message could take more bandwidth. He also created a tattletale system among the followers. If someone told on another member for breaking the rules, they curried favor with Victor and with God. This reinforced loyalty, which only gave Victor more control. Jessica Morecambe's stepfather, Dirk Cheshire, became an enthusiastic follower of Victor. He spoke vigorously about serving the Lord and the importance of obeying Victor in all things. According to Dirk, following Victor was the true path of the righteous man. But there was another behavior that came with this newfound empowerment. He began sexually assaulting his stepdaughter, Jessica. We need to be clear that we have no evidence of Victor directing Dirk to commit these heinous acts. However, Jessica describes her stepfather, Dirk, becoming more controlling of her behavior once Victor was in charge. He would punish her for how she spoke about God and bombard her with emotional abuse to go along with the physical assault. In 1994, Jessica told her mother about the sexual assaults. Her mother went straight to the police. Dirk was arrested, and he pled guilty to criminal sexual conduct. Jessica showed up at his sentencing hearing to testify, but there was someone there to defend her stepfather, Victor Bernard. Victor took the stand as a character witness for the confessed child molester. Victor also confronted Jessica, imploring the girl to forgive Dirk. Jessica was horrified. She couldn't believe this powerful man of God had come to the defense of the man who attacked her. It got worse. The punishment Dirk received for molesting his teenage stepdaughter was a mere four months in jail. And when he was released, he was welcomed back into the fold. Victor Bernard used Dirk as an example to preach the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness for the man, but not the woman. Victor confronted Jessica's mother with a galling demand. He said that Jessica was a problem child and she had to get rid of her. Not get rid of her as in leave the fellowship, but to actually disown her. Because Jessica refused to forgive Dirk at his request, Victor likely saw her as a threat to his leadership. He needed her out of the picture completely. Jessica's mother did not heed Victor's instructions. They both soon left his flock. Investigative reporters in Minnesota would later find three instances in which Victor tried to get a family to give up their children or put them up for adoption. No records indicate that Victor was ever successful at this. This was an incredible demand, likely designed to test how far followers would go for him. It's a stunning demand telling a parent to give up their own children, and it cost Victor otherwise loyal followers. Kayla Backman's mother was among those propositioned, and she was outraged by the request. She immediately pulled the family from the group. However, it's not always easy to up and leave a cult. It wasn't long before Victor was knocking on the Backman's door. Kayla recalls Victor standing on her stoop, demanding to know why they wanted to leave the fellowship. None of their answers are satisfactory. He criticized and chastised them to the point of harassment. Like with his ex-girlfriend, Mary, Victor lashed out at the family who had questioned his authority. Victor's followers would call the house and tell them if they did not return, they would die like Ananias and Sapphira a couple from the Bible who fell dead when lying to St. Peter about money. Kayla's family escaped, 
but the threats stayed with her family. They didn't know how far Victor would go to get them back into the fold. Kayla said that it took years for her mother to feel safe, to feel as if Victor had finally forgotten about them. This was likely Victor's early attempts at mind control. According to psychologist Dr. Margaret Singer, cult leaders will use their ideology to place enormous social and psychological pressures on their followers. This will decrease reasonable objection and make the follower more susceptible to suggestion. Victor was seemingly hard at work perfecting this skill. Jessica Morecambe's case did not gain much local attention in Rush City, but even the pinprick of spotlight spooked Victor as he tried to stabilize his operation. In 1996, the River Road Fellowship set up a permanent home. They purchased an 85-acre camp in the nearby town of Finlayson. It cost $575,000, likely raised by member donations. Since Victor's followers considered him the Shepherd of the Lord, he christened the new home Shepherd's Camp. Finlayson was much smaller than Rush City. Fewer than 200 people lived there. Victor and his few dozen followers moving into the town was nothing short of a population boom. The camp itself was even more remote. It was nestled by a lake in a wooded area along a dirt road. The brutal Minnesota winters made it even more difficult to access. It's not an exaggeration to say that Shepherd's Camp was in the middle of nowhere. Victor Bernard was building his own paradise in a place no one would ever look for it. The fellowship members created a self-sustaining community around Shepherd's Camp. Members lived in modest homes, with the camp serving as the communal center of activity. There was a central chapel for church services. They farmed livestock and crops for themselves. They made their own clothing. There was no outside media, like TV or radio. They cut off as much influence of the outside world as they could. It was like a middle America version of Jonestown. There, Jim Jones cut off his People's Temple followers from the world at large and bombarded them with his message constantly, quite literally on a loudspeaker that would run 24 hours a day. Soon, Jones's followers were mindless drones. Victor didn't have loudspeakers, but his sermons and teachings created a similar grip on his followers. Victor's sermons would use biblical interpretation to paint a black and white, good and evil view of the world. The camp was filled with prayer books written by him and audio tapes of his sermons, which talked about God and Jesus Christ as being the only good in the world. Everything else was evil, influenced by the devil. Disobeying Victor was the same as disobeying God. One former member told the Minneapolis Star Tribune that the change was so gradual, they almost didn't notice it. This shows how much Victor had mastered exerting control. First, his followers let him lead their Bible study. Then they let him lead them to a camp. During the early 1990s, they accepted when he called himself the true apostle. Over the next few years, many looked at him as Christ in the flesh, or the closest thing to it. It was a progression that felt natural and organic. Victor presented his message with such surety that left little room for doubt in the minds of yearning believers. Victor told his followers that God spoke to him regularly, that the orders he gave them came directly from God himself. Therefore, Victor's voice was the voice of God. His followers believed him and obeyed. This was the key to Victor's control over his flock. By the mid-1990s, he was more than a preacher. He was Christ incarnate. He was God made flesh. To go against him was to risk eternal damnation. 
To cross him would be to go against everything they believed in. To disobey him was to become evil. Armed with this divine authority, Victor turned his recruitment efforts to the former Way International members he was still in touch with. He traveled to nearby states, bringing the message of salvation at Shepherd's Camp. He was ready to transition from Bible study preacher to a full-blown prophet, made infallible by the Word of God. We'll see how Victor wields his newfound power after this. Now, back to the story. In 1996, Victor Bernard set up a permanent home for the River Road Fellowship at a remote camp in Minnesota called Shepherd's Camp. He then reached out to former Way International members to join him and fill in his ranks. Just because the Way International fell apart doesn't mean the needs of the former members did as well. A team of psychiatrists from Harvard and Berkeley were interviewed by the New York Times in 1982 during the height of the Way International. They talked about the lasting damage of the brainwashing of cults and the emotional vulnerability of people who join cults. Those things are not cured just because the cult disappears or collapses. People who have been conditioned into cults tend to seek out that environment in other forms long after their cult breaks apart. Victor would meet with former Way International members in their homes, using many of the same recruiting tips that had been used to indoctrinate these people in the first place. Lindsay Turnambi's parents were former ministers within the Way International. Victor paid the Turnambi family a visit at their Pennsylvania home in 1996. He told them of Shepherd's camp and the sense of community. Lindsay described Victor as someone that would make anyone stop and listen. He certainly had the attention of her parents. They decided to take the family on a pilgrimage to Shepherd's camp in April of 1997. The setting was idyllic. Lush farmlands, grazing animals, families working together in harmony. Lindsay's family greeted Shepherd's Camp like a long-lost Eden. Lindsay and her family would make four more visits over the next year. They couldn't stay away, and Victor didn't want them to. One day in 1998, Victor flew to Pennsylvania to meet with Lindsay's family and several other fellowship families who were living there. He set down a strict ultimatum. He said that God had told him to stop splitting his time between true believers in Minnesota and the false believers who lived outside the state. If any followers wanted to prove their worth, they had to join Victor and the River Road Fellowship at Shepherd's Camp. Almost overnight, Lindsay's parents decided that the family must make the move. They were resolute. Like the followers in Minnesota, they believed Victor to be Christ in the flesh. The path to salvation ran through Shepherd's Camp. The way of life they knew was abandoned, and soon they were headed back to Minnesota for good. Lindsay's parents were seeking Christ's love. Victor convinced them the only way to get that love was to fully commit to him. The more they committed to him, the more Christ would love them. They sold their house and most of their belongings. Victor taught them that material goods wouldn't help them at the camp. They needed to be free of the secular trappings of the modern world. They also needed to be free of reminders of the life they were leaving behind. Victor didn't want them to get homesick for life away from the camp. He needed them fully engaged and focused on the task at hand. Lindsay recalled her mother being very excited about the relocation. Her mother would talk about wearing her wedding dress, as this move was another union with God. After all, Victor taught them that the church was the bride of Christ. This may be the most symbolic example of the commitment they were making to Victor. They weren't marrying into the fellowship. They were marrying the fellowship itself. 
joining Victor wasn't just a move across state lines, it was a union sanctified by God. They weren't just leaving Pennsylvania. They were cutting themselves off from the rest of the world. Remember, no outside media of any kind, although there was minimal contact with nearby communities. The fellowship operated several small businesses, like pottery making and house cleaning services to earn money. The fellowship had a modest overhead, but needed minimal funding nonetheless. As a local, Victor knew how to navigate local ordinances and municipalities to ensure their operations didn't come under any scrutiny. While there were no illegalities to these businesses, Victor wanted no extra attention from law enforcement, the IRS, or anyone in the outside world. There's not too much known about Victor's family life. Lindsay once reported that Victor lived in one house while Stephanie and the children lived in another house, and that on the whole, they seemed like an atypical family unit. But beyond that, there's little known about their relationship. One thing we can infer is that Stephanie and their sons were as obedient as the rest of the flock. There's no reason for us to believe they were free from Victor's hold. Remember, she was a fervent believer of Victor Weirwill and the way, the roots of her husband's practices. For his believers, this was paradise. They lived in their own commune under the protective watch of Victor, a manifestation of Jesus Christ. They wanted for nothing. Victor's sermons, however, were forceful, even frightening. They were filled with proverbial fire and brimstone. He told his flock that the devil was in every corner of the world they left behind. But at the camp, they had nothing to fear, so long as they obeyed Victor. According to the scriptures, Jesus, the apostles, and even the devil himself interacted with everyday people. They were a part of ordinary life. Victor portrayed the devil as a real-life monster who was just one wrong turn away. By creating such a powerful and destructive enemy, Victor could then portray himself as the sole protector who would keep the devil at bay. By making the devil real, it also reinforced the idea that Christ was real as well, and that he was Christ. When Lindsay and her family arrived in 1999, she estimated that about 80 members lived there. More recruits soon joined, swelling the group to an estimated 150 members. At this time, Finlayson's population was around 300 people, so Victor and his followers accounted for half of the entire town. Victor was aggressive in his recruitment, but not overly so. He didn't seem interested in rebuilding an organization the size of the Way International, which had thousands of members across several countries. This small community seemed more than enough for him. Lindsay described the early years at Shepherd's Camp as akin to summer camp. She had friends her own age. They worked the farm and tended to livestock. Everyone was working together in harmony. Victor's entrapment worked. These families did not miss the outside world. The members had all they needed from Victor and therefore no reason to disobey him. But despite the overall peaceful nature of the camp, Victor's temper was always bubbling just under the surface. Victor used rage as a means for intimidation. At times he would snap, yelling and screaming at followers for the slightest mistake in their chores. He would berate people publicly always reminding them that his word was the word of God. None of this fazed the followers. Their devotion to Victor never wavered. Remember, in many readings of the Bible, God can be seen as angry and vengeful. So while some may see these outbursts as cracks in the facade, it could well be that Victor was actually acting a role the followers expected to see. As the verse goes, 
Love the Lord in all things because to cross him brings the most terrible wrath. Therefore, the offending members would work even harder to prove their love for Victor. Victor led church services and prayer meetings, but he had other ways of delivering his message. There was the Feast of the Tabernacle. All the fellowship members would gather and pray as a male sheep was shot and killed for the feast. A literal sacrificial lamb. Victor used this to symbolize the sacrifice Jesus made for the sins of all men. The blood of the lamb washes all was one of Victor's common mantras. In the summer of 2000, Victor held a service in the chapel. All followers were present. He read from the book of Ruth, which has strong themes of family and obedience to God. Victor claimed God spoke to him about the sacrifices written about in the Old Testament. God told him to reenact these sacrifices within the camp. As such, 10 firstborn girls from the camp would be selected to be his maidens as a sort of spiritual sacrifice. They would live with Victor at his house in Shepherd's Camp, serving the Lord in total commitment. The implication was that they would perform household duties so that Victor would have a closer communion with God. The maidens, in turn, would be seen as very special for aiding in these domestics. Victor read off the names of the 10 girls chosen. They were excited and enthusiastic. They were being chosen to live closer to God. Lindsay reports that her mother was ecstatic, but that her father was sad. But if he had any suspicions about Victor's intentions, he did not share them with anyone. Lindsay assured him that she would be home soon. At the time she was chosen to be a maiden, she was just 13 years old. All 10 girls were between 12 and 24 years old. Before they moved in with Victor, they partook in a union known as a salt ceremony. The maidens wore bridal veils. They were adorned with rings. Victor placed salt in their mouths, a symbol of union and agreement going back to the Old Testament. It was a spiritual wedding between Victor and the girls. The parents of these 10 girls beamed with pride. After the ceremony, Victor pulled the parents of the girls aside and asked for permission to sleep with their daughters as part of their marital covenant. Every parent agreed. It's important to note, years later, Lindsay's father said he thought Victor meant he would sleep with Lindsay when she was much older. Maybe the other parents thought that as well. The girls lived all alone in the house with Victor. His wife, Stephanie, and their sons lived separately. If Stephanie had any objections to her husband having 10 young girls moving in with him, she didn't show it. This was likely because Stephanie was one of Victor's most ardent followers. Life at Victor's home was very regimented. The maidens saw to cooking, cleaning, and gardening, but they were also ordered to honor their modesty, no makeup of any kind. Their hair was to be worn up, except when by themselves or alone with Victor. They were not to speak to any men. They were to avert their gaze from any man but Victor. There would be monthly visits with their parents at church, but for all intents and purposes, these girls were cut off from even the rest of the fellowship. These were the rules that come with the privilege of being close to the Lord. They belonged to Victor now. In July of 2000, Lindsay was called before Victor. He told her that he wanted to show her God's love. Victor took the 13-year-old Lindsay to his bedroom. He laid a towel onto the bed, warning her that she may bleed as this was her first time. Lindsay's memories of the event are of pure fear. Now we know the true meaning of Victor Bernard's work. 
It wasn't protecting anyone from the devil. If the devil lived in anyone's soul at Shepherd's Camp, it was Victor's. When Victor was finished with Lindsay, he dismissed her back to her room. She was all alone, cut off from her family and conditioned to obey. Who could she turn to? Her parents? They're the ones who gave her up to this life. The other followers? They would tell her she was not appreciating her privileged position. She cried herself to sleep, trapped in a hell of her parents' devising. Victor assaulted all ten women he had sham married. Jess Schweiss was the youngest victim at only twelve. Victor began assaulting her just after she got her first period. The maidens were not seen often around the camp, but every once in a while, Victor would present them at worship or while holding small hymnal concerts. There was never a hint of the abuse happening behind closed doors. Despite claiming these were acts of love, Victor made it clear to the girls that no one else must know of these encounters. If they were to tell anyone, even each other, they would be punished. Despite this, Jess Schweiss would mark an X on her calendar on days when she was assaulted. It was her attempt at creating a trail of breadcrumbs for someone to follow should Victor ever be found out. When Lindsay was 15 years old, she summoned the courage to run away from Victor's house. She escaped back to her parents' residence a few miles away, but she wasn't welcomed by protective parents. Instead, she was showered with disappointment. How in the world could she run away from the true apostle of God? Lindsay did not get a chance to tell her story about Victor's assaults. Victor visited his wayward maiden and promised her eternal damnation if she did not return. Seeing no other choice, Lindsay moved back in with Victor. This really hammers home the invisible fortress that Victor built. Lindsay was in a remote rural backwater where not even her own parents believed her. She had nowhere to run. If her parents brought her back to Victor, wouldn't everyone else? Early the next year, one of Lindsay's aunts decided to visit the family in their communal new home. She was shocked to find that she was not allowed to see Lindsay at all. The aunt sensed something was very wrong at the camp. She could see that the people were under a spell of some kind. And while she didn't know exactly what was happening, she knew she didn't like it. Fearing for her niece's safety, the aunt and her husband called the Pine County Sheriff's Department to pay a visit to the River Road Fellowship. Police cars pulled up the long road to Shepherd's Camp to investigate. Victor Bernard was now face to face with law enforcement. The Sheriff's Department were welcomed to the camp. The members told them that they were there of their own free will. With no complaint coming from within the camp, nor with any evidence of wrongdoing occurring, the Sheriff's Department drove away. And so the maidens would stay with Victor for years, trapped. They were cut off from the rest of the world. Their parents worshipped the man who was destroying their lives. From the ashes of the Way International, Victor had succeeded in building his own private Eden. He had complete control. There were no limits to how he could manipulate the followers at Shepherd's Camp for his own ends. Next week, we'll see how one of the victim's unending courage thrust Victor into the national spotlight and finally put an end to the horrors going on under his roof. Victor thought he was infallible, and for more than a decade, that would seem to be true. Victor was right about one thing. The devil was very real, and he walked free in Shepherd's Camp, controlling every sheep.
Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Tim Davis and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 